0: With that, we are going to return to 1 Timothy chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16 has been our text, we thought we were going to maybe finish this in two sermons, up three, up four, up five, and I think today we're actually going to do it. Five five messages on widows indeed, and... uh, this has been a great study. I I just um, I feel rebuked uh, having gone through the text week by week. I keep thinking, oh well, there's not much left here. And then after I spend a while studying and thinking and poring over the text, there there's so much more here that um, I was almost tempted to make it a six-parter. But we do have to move on so that we can get to the things that I hope to get to. Um, next fall um, in our series, Old Testament uh, introduction series, followed by the attributes of God from Psalm 145, and that's kind of what's on the horizon that we're working towards. As you read through the Bible, you frequently come upon taxes. we mentioned, addressing widows. And again, I just went through the scriptures and I began to notice how... God purposed in His plan of redemption and in His overall um, revelation to use widows to proclaim the truth or as an integral part of His plan. Ruth, as you know, is a widow whose mother Naomi was a widow. And Ruth married Boaz and gave birth to Obed and Obed Jesse and Jesse David and all the way down to Christ where Ruth, the Moabite, a widow became part of the messianic line after she was married to Boaz. We see Abigail, who is Nabal's widow, and she is held up in the book of 1 Samuel as a very wise and shrewd woman. So much so that God struck her husband dead, his name meant fool, and she is lifted up as this very wise and prudent a um, woman and later on King David married her. God appointed the poor widow of Zarephath to take care of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. And so God wanted to display his power. And so he did it through this poor widow and through Elijah in the whole circumstance regarding the famine. Elijah performed a miracle to help. This is Elisha. Uh, uh, help perform a miracle for um, A widow. And 2 Kings 4, remember she came to him and didn't, was so poor and destitute that there was just hardly any hope. And he said, go, go get as many jars as you can. And she brought a bunch of jars and he filled them up with very costly olive oil that she was able to sell and live off of for um, a long time. In Mark 12, 42, Jesus used the widow, Anna, as an example of sacrificial giving. Um, Only Mark's gospel says her name was Anna, but that was the widow who gave her two mites that Jesus said gave more than all the other people combined that day because she was such a great example of sacrificial giving. There is another widow named Anna mentioned in the Gospels, who was a prophetess. Luke 2 talks about her. She served in the temple and prayed in the temple night and day. And she is held up as a great woman of God and an example for all of us. In Luke chapter 7, verses 12-15, through 15, Jesus felt compassion on the widow who had lost her son. And so he raised the widow's son from the dead so that she might not be left all alone. Peter in Acts felt compassion on the widow of Joppa. Do you remember her name? Dorcas, and also Tabitha, the Greek and the Hebrew name. She wasn't... The text doesn't say she was a widow, but what's interesting about the text, it says she was a minister to widows because when Peter arrived... All the widows, it says, had gathered together and were grieving and they were showing Peter their tunics which Dorcas had made for them. Which tells us that one of her specialized ministries was a ministry to widows. And so Peter raises Dorcas from the dead so that she can continue to minister to the widows. We have also learned that there are many exhortations and commandments in the Bible directed at the people of God to take care of widows. Exodus twenty two twenty two, for example, the Lord commands that you shall not afflict any orphan or widow. The same command appears in Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen, Isaiah one seventeen, Jeremiah twenty two three, and Zechariah seven ten. In Deuteronomy fourteen, twenty-nine, six, eleven, and fourteen, the Word of God instructs his people to make sure that when a widow comes through town, that they provide for her and give her food and lodging. In Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21, it commands that sheaves of grain were to be left in the field for widows, that when they harvested the the olives, they were to shake the tree, and when the olives would fall down, there would still be some left, and they were not to shake it twice. They were to leave the rest for the widows. And also, when they gleaned um, the grapes off the grapevines, they were to make one pass and not two, so that there would be some clusters of grapes left for the widow. James in James 1.27 says that pure and undefiled religion is visiting orphans and widows In their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And what was interesting is I studied and I was looking at all these texts on widows, I found out that the character of God Himself is linked directly to widows and how He feels or treats widows or says widows should be taken care of. Listen to what He says in Deuteronomy 18:10. He describes a God who executes justice for the orphan and widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. In Psalm 68.5, the Lord is described as a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is a God, his holy habitation. In Psalm 146.9, we read, The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but He thwarts the way of the wicked. In Proverbs 15.25, the Lord is described as the one who establishes and increases the boundary of the widow. In Malachi 3.5, the Lord is described as the judge of those who oppress the widow. So all the way through the Scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see widows as playing a very important part, not only in the working of God and not only as examples of godliness, but there are many exhortations to the people of God to make sure they take care of widows in the right way. Now, as you can imagine, as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as you, you move from a theocracy to until, until the church, from a nation to the body of Christ, things changed. And even though a lot of the principles still remain same, the same, the question is that Timothy asked Paul is, so, so how do we treat widows? I know that God has this special place in his heart for widows, but what are we supposed to do about them? I mean, what is his will for widows in the church? So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives the church an instruction manual concerning widows, and it is here before us in the text. Paul takes the same principles found in the Old Testament but he applies them to the New Testament setting in the church. In 1 Timothy 3 through 16, Paul has divided up widows into two groups, widows and widows indeed. The widows indeed are to be honored financially and supported by the church. Those who do not qualify as widows indeed are to be supported in other ways by other people for different reasons. So, if you have your Bible, look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Follow along as we read the context. And then this morning, we are going to answer our last two questions that we've asked. We've asked six questions of the text. We've already answered the first question what does it mean to honor a widow indeed? We've answered the second question what is a widow indeed, or, or what are the qualifications of a widow indeed? We've answered the question, what are widows responsible not to do? And what are widows, especially younger widows, responsible to do? So this morning we come to the last two questions, which is what are the family members of widows responsible to do and what are the church leaders, and the church in general responsible to do in relationship to widows. So that's what we're going to answer this morning. Those last two questions follow along as I read the context, starting in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 5. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to strangers, and if she has washed the saints' feet, and if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So, we come to the fifth question, the first one today, What are family members responsible to do in relationship to their widows? And several verses address this, the first being verse 4, look there, where we read this. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, the first thing we note from the text is that little word, but... That is a contrast word because he has just finished speaking of widows indeed. And now he is making a contrast between widows indeed who need to be honored by the church through financial support. But the contrast is there are other widows who are not widows indeed, obviously, because they have not been left alone, obviously, because they have children or grandchildren and they need to be taken care of in a different way. Paul goes on to say, they, referring to the children and grandchildren, must first learn to practice piety. The words must first learn mean to practice as a priority habit. That's what it means. Head knowledge is never considered learning until you put it into practice. As Thomas Watson says, knowledge without practice is but a a torch to light men to hell. God does not give you knowledge. He does not give you doctrine. He does not give us the Bible so we can stick it in our head merely. He gives us the Bible. He gives us doctrine. He gives us truth about himself so we can stick it in our head and in our heart and so we can live it. And so there is a great difference between just knowing facts and learning, especially in the Hebrew mindset. God does not want you to merely accumulate correct doctrine. He wants you to collect and live sound doctrine. And being Christian is not merely knowing certain things, but it is doing and knowing certain things. You do need to learn the truth, but if you fail to apply the truth, you are the hypocrite you actually bring reproach upon the name of God because you are really living like a practical atheist. You are claiming with your mouth that you love God, but with your life, you are denying Him. In reality, you live like someone who hates God, and this brings condemnation. So Paul says in verse 4, the first thing that needs to happen is you family members who have widows in your family, you children, you grandchildren, you must learn as a first priority to make it a habit of showing godliness towards your family. Now, the word Eusebio or Eusebius is the word translated here piety. We've, we've encountered this word before. If you don't remember, turn back to 1 Timothy two. 2. 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. This is one of the key theme words of the whole book of 1 Timothy. Here he's talking about prayers and entreaties and thanksgivings and petitions being made on behalf of you know, kings and all who are in authority so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all. Eusebio, right there. Godliness. That's the same word. Look down three at uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Here um, is this little... Uh, Part of an ancient hymn, most likely, that is um, talking about the incarnation of Christ. And in verse 16, he starts off, By common confession, great is the mystery of, and there's the word, godliness, Eusebio. If you look at chapter 4, verse 7, He's talking about the the good or excellent minister of Jesus Christ and what he pursues and what he doesn't pursue as a top priority. He says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of Eusebio, godliness. If you look at verse 8, For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness, there is the same word, is profitable for all things. It's the same thing He's, he's exhorting us to... Um, adhere to here but in relationship to widows if you look at chapter 6 verse 3 and this is a very key verse in chapter 6 verse 3 if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness notice doctrine is always to conform us to godliness we are never to have doctrine that conforms us to rebellion Doctrine is always for the purpose of doing, never merely knowing. He says in verse 11 of that same chapter, chapter 6, But flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, and Eusebio, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The whole book is about pursuing godliness. The whole book is about how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the practice of piety or godliness. And in this instance, addressing widows in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, children and grandchildren, you need to practice godliness. You are to live in such a way as your behavior towards your widows, your mother or grandmother who is a widow, shows that you are practicing godliness. And the question we need to ask is, are we living like Christians in the way we treat our widows? Remember, there was no welfare system, no social security system in the New Testament. And so, if um, you were older and you didn't have resources um, to take care of yourself or your health was failing, you would be totally reliant upon your family to take care of you. So Paul goes on to explain, though, what showing piety would look like when he says children, notice what the verse says, should make some return to their parents. Now, what's that? Make some return. It really means to pay back. It is a word which means to pay back a debt or obligation, to refund um, something, um, give back something that was previously given. Now, what is it that your mother or grandmother has done for you that you could repay back in like kind? Well, try a million poopy diapers. You know, try a million, um, you know, throw up rags and batches of laundry and all those things that mothers do, getting up in the middle of the night with sick kids and all those things, the sacrifice, and often just without complaint, without hesitation. Total self-sacrifice, and especially as you were an infant, you couldn't take care of yourself. Somebody had to clothe you and feed you and bathe you and do every single thing for you. And your mother and your grandmother sacrificed diligently often to raise you. And so when he says, make some return, he's saying, do the same thing towards your widowed mother or grandmother, that they have already done for you. That is, repay them for their diligent, self-sacrificing love on your behalf. Paul is saying, since your parents have done this for you, it is only right that you do this for your parents. Make some return. Just as loving parents care for their children... So we should care for those widows who are in our families. William Hendrickson quoted a Dutch proverb, which I thought was ironically true, that says, quote, it is often easier for one poor father to bring up ten children than for ten rich children to provide for one poor father. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you... I've been in families where people maybe have not taken care of of mom or dad. They're old. They can't get around anymore. Maybe they're confined to the house or in a retirement home, and and they they they're feeble. You get old, you get feeble, and it's so easy to think. Well, you know, I live in you know New Jersey or. New Mexico, and I just can't run over there. I'll let my brother do that, or I'll let the church do that, or whatever. No, God says you, as a Christian, must make some return. That is, you must not take the easy, selfish, self-serving way. Don't sit there and tell yourself, "Well, you know, uh, I've got to, uh, you know, I got to save my resources here for myself. I have, you know, I do have a life." God wants you to learn how to provide for your own parents in their old age as they have provided for you in your young age. We are not just talking about financial support either. We are talking about visiting. We are talking about talking with. Many widows have financial resources, but they need somebody to talk with, just like you need somebody to talk with. But you're sitting there thinking, oh, but Jack, I've heard the story so many times. Over and over again, every time, it's like, oh, this is story 32. (laughs) And you could just like almost quote it word perfect. But you know, just as you like telling people what's going on in your life, so they like to tell people what has gone on in their life. And you need to show them respect by allowing them to tell you their same old stories, because you know what? You're going to be there someday. And you aren't going to remember what story you told. But you're going to have your favorite ones, and you're going to to tell them over and over again. Say, I I, I don't know if I've told you this, and they tell you it anyways. You say, Well, yeah, last time and the time before that, and 50 other times. But they just keep going. People need people to talk to them, to listen to their life stories, to take them out and let them see the outside world outside the confines of their room or. Whatever. If you have a mother or a grandmother who is a widow, you are in need of practicing piety towards them and you need to ask yourself, am I doing that? Oh, but you say they're, they're not believers. Well, then evangelize them. Oh, they, they don't love God. Well, show them the love of God. Like, oh, well... They never visited theirs. Listen, you need to visit them and your children need to see you visit them so that your children, when you get there, will visit you. Otherwise, you'll be sitting there all alone. If you have a mother or grandmother who is a widow and you are not practicing godliness towards them, you need to start today. Run home and take care of business. Now you ask, well, how can I do that? You know, my, my grandmother lives in, you know, whatever, New York. Well, the first step in taking care and practicing piety, practicing piety towards your own family is to make a plan to do so. Don't just wing it and say, you know, I should, you know, I'll get around eventually to, you know, contacting my mother or my grandmother or whatever who is a widow. Don't just wing it. Make a plan on doing something. What I mean by that is every Monday you call her at a certain time. You know, every two weeks you send her a card or send her some flowers. If she's close by, you know, every regular time you you visit her, you take her out, you let her see the outside world, take her to a park, you know, drive around, let her see the world a little bit, get some sunshine, you know, vitamin D deficiency sitting in there all day. They can't get out. They need you. Make a plan. Plan on making it a priority. Put it on your calendar. This is what I do at this time so that you can take care of those widows in your family. Some of you are or will become widows whose children will not practice piety in regard to you. And some of you who We'll end up in maybe a nursing home or just confined to your own home. Old, your outer man's decaying. will have choices to make. Because you will be very tempted to grow bitter and angry and resentful because other people aren't meeting your needs or your family is not coming by and your children are not treating you with honor. But you need to know that every situation you find yourself in is part of God's plan for your life. And God uses pain and suffering and trial to make you more godly. And you need to be thankful for that. God may see it fit to take you quickly while your health is very good. You know, that's what I hope I hope I'm 90. I'm preaching a really good sermon and all of a sudden, oh! I fall over, you know, and then I won't have to go through that. But that's not how it is for everyone. Sometimes it's a slow process where God begins to slowly take away your strength, take away your resources, take away your self-sufficiency and your self-reliance and your maybe even your ability to think. Why would he do that? Well, God wants all of us to trust in him with a whole heart and a willing mind. And some people, while they are young and while they are healthy, don't learn that lesson. And God loves his children so much that sometimes he waits to the end to teach them that most important lesson. The lesson of total trust and total reliance upon him. When there's nobody else there, there you have no resources, you can't do it. And you cry out to God. And believe me, when you are crying out to God, when you are trusting in God, you cannot be in a better situation than that. This world is not our home. And God can use these kinds of situations to shake all the dirt of this world off of our roots to get us unattached from the things of this world. I remember talking to uh, uh, one of the seminary professors, uh, first dean of the master Seminary, Charles Smith, who came down with cancer. He knew he was going to die within six months, and there was nothing they could do. And so he came and he spoke in chapel and said, I'm going to die. And he says, there's nothing I can do about it. And he says, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Um, He says, um, I've never died before. (laughs) And uh, he said, he says, what's really neat about it is I can't wait to see if my theology works all the way to the very end. But he says, you know, there's something very interesting which I knew in my head, but I hadn't really experienced fully in my life. And that was this. As soon as I found out, I am going to be in glory probably within six months. He said, I had no desire to work in my yard anymore, which I love to do. No desire to read the paper or to go shopping or to buy anything of this world. He says, the only thing that's important to me now is people and serving the Lord. See, God used that to bring him to the place where he realized what is important. And so often we go through life and we kick and kick against God, who is trying to teach us things, and we we complain against his trying to teach. You know, Lord, teach me to be godly. Okay, I'm going to take all this away from you. Why are you doing this? And I just want to encourage you, some of you who will find yourself alone Neglected by your family that God will teach you great things at that time if you trust him with your whole heart Uh, you and I both know that God wants you to die trusting him completely and if he has to do it that way then that's what you need not everybody needs it but some of us do. God is a refuge, He is a fortress, He is a bulwark, a shield, a rock, a father, a savior, a deliverer, and He gives abundant joy even to widows who are all alone with only God present. So we need to take encouragement for that. But back to the text, Paul then adds the motivation behind all of this, Why are children and grandchildren to make some return to their parents? Because it is acceptable in the sight of God. The word acceptable might also be translated well-pleasing. It is the same word in chapter 2, verse 3, where it is well-pleasing, that we pray for kings and all men and all who are in authority. We all need to ask ourselves, am I practicing piety in regard to the widows in my family circle? Now, what was really interesting here is you know how you're reading your bible and and uh you come across some you know something in the gospel or something Jesus is always the example. Have you noticed that uh, he 's always the example of about everything i mean if you if you think you're doing good, you just look at how Jesus did it and you 're bad and um, and I never noticed this before, but I was reading through a section and turn in your Bibles to John 19. John 19. You know, Paul is constantly putting forth Jesus as the example, but I never thought he was the example of showing piety towards widows. Now, Jesus, in the context here, is being crucified. This is John 19, verses 26 and 27. He is offering self up as the Lamb of God. He has been flogged and beaten and nailed to the cross. He has had a, had a crown of thorns shoved down upon his brow. He is in excruciating pain and agony. He has a criminal at one side hurling abuses at him, a criminal at the other side of him crying out to be saved. There he has the crowd in front of him mocking him. And in all this... In all of this, in the midst of all the pain and all the chaos, while the Father is pleasing to crush His own Son, to make Him die the death that we should have died, to place all the sins while redemption is being made at the very process of this, at the very last moments of Jesus' life, when He had plenty of things to deal with, He stops and deals with a widow. Look at what it says in verse 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Whoa. I mean, you would think, nails in your feet, nails in your hands, tortured, beaten, whipped, the sins of all the world being placed upon you, the Father withdrawing, people hurling abuse at you, that you would think of something else. Help! (laughs) Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet, while all of this is happening, while... The greatest event in history is happening in the midst of that final little moment. Pause. John, my mother, who is a widow, needs somebody to take care of her. And I want you to do it. And he did. And what is amazing is, is that Jesus had other half-brothers who could have taken care of his mother. But he wanted John his loving and compassionate disciple. He wanted John to take care of his mother, and so he did. Jesus, again, being the great example of what it means to show piety towards one, one's own widows and their his own family. I mean, you need to think about yourself. What if you were old, and you were a widow, and you were all alone? In some nursing home or convalescent home or in some small apartment or some old house that was too big and empty? What would you like your family to do? Visit you on Thanksgiving and Christmas? Call you once a year? See how you're doing? Don't think to yourself, oh, the church will visit them. God calls you to visit them. They're your family. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've got my own family. You know, I've got my job. I've got my hobbies. I'm a busy person. I just don't have time. I'm pursuing the things of the world. You know, what if I just can't squeeze my mother or grandmother in? I mean, it's not the unforgivable sin, is it? Well, look at verse 8. After Paul defines what a widow indeed is in verse 5, warns against wicked behavior in verse 6, and gives an exhortation to Timothy in verse 7, look at what Paul says in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, you don't have to do a great study on that to know that whatever he means here, it's bad. It is bad to be worse than an unbeliever. That's like being lower than a snake in a wagon rut. I mean, you are down there. And this is the strongest rebuke found anywhere in the book. Anywhere in the book. The words provide for in verse 8 when it says, if anyone does not... Provide for means to think beforehand or to anticipate a need beforehand and to plan accordingly. In other words, you know that your mom might become a widow or she is a widow. And so you make plans to provide for her. Now, what what also is interesting, notice he actually lists two different groups here. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and here he is talking about not just mothers and grandmothers, he is talking about any widow within your extended family. Then he switches to those to immediate family when he says, especially those of his own household or his own family. He goes from the, oh, so your aunt Sue is a widow. She's your responsibility too. Not just your mother or your grandmother, but anybody in your extended family, especially those of your family. So he makes this two different statements. Now, Paul is restating in a negative way what he has already stated in a positive way in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, children, grandchildren, make them return to your parents. Now he is saying, whatever you do, do not fail to do this. And he widens the circle to include any widow within your family relations, one's own family. Paul then lists two consequences of being unwilling to practice piety in regard to one's own family. And these are two sharp verbal blows. The first one is bad and the last one is really bad. Notice what he says. You don't take care of your mother, your grandmother, or widows within your immediate or extended family. You have denied the faith. Now, just stop there for a second. First of all, Paul is not saying here that you lose your salvation if you you fail to visit your widowed mother once a month. But what he is saying is that to not practice as a priority and habit treating your mother or grandmother or any other widow in your family with With godliness, by visiting them and talking with them and doing those things we talk, you have in action denied the very core of the Christian faith. You cannot truly believe with saving faith truth which you are not willing to follow. Paul says both at the beginning and the end of Romans that the reason he preached the gospel was to bring about the obedience of faith, not the rebellion of faith. That happened before the gospel came. In chapter 6 he says that now that the gospel has come and faith has come and grace has come, now that you have believed with saving faith, you are no longer a slave of sin but a slave of righteousness, obedience the truth is the natural outcome of true saving faith and that is what James says in James 2 right James says oh you say you have faith I'm telling you if your faith does not produce works it's dead and it cannot save you it is pseudo faith false faith faith that will not save you now of course whenever you say things like this people start freaking and the people who start freaking are the people who are out there who are under conviction And they're under conviction because they know they aren't living the life they're supposed to. And they want to think of themselves as Christians when they know they're living a life of rebellion. So they begin to accuse the preacher of, you legalist. You're teaching salvation by works. You're you're, you're preaching a false gospel. Listen. The only kind of faith which can save you is a faith which leads to regeneration. Regeneration. And if there is no regeneration, there is no saving faith. If you don't become a new creature, you aren't saved. Because that is what happens when everyone is saved. They become a new creature. They become transformed. The Word of God stands and John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. They like that part. The rest of the verse, they do not like. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's what God's Word says. Listen to what Hebrews 5, 9 says. And he became, speaking of Jesus, the source of eternal salvation to who? To all who obey him. In other words, if you don't, he isn't. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, 6 through 11. Now, the loving thing to do is to practice piety in regard to one's own widows. Now, listen to this. 1 John 3, 6 through 11. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Now, just stop there for a second. Whenever there is a specific mention of be careful and don't be deceived, the reason the author puts that there is because many people are deceived. And so he tries to shake people out of their deception by saying, don't be deceived about this. What? The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That is as crystal clear as you can possibly get. It is not that works save you. It is that true saving faith always produces works. If you fail to care for your own, especially those of your own family, you have denied the very core of the Christian faith in your actions. Then Paul continues saying that the one who will not take care of his own family has not only denied the faith, if that wasn't worse, bad enough, he says he is worse than an unbeliever. Now, how could that be? I mean, what is worse than an unbeliever? What is an unbeliever? Well, a child of Satan, walking according to the prince to the power of the air, spiritually dead, unable to understand the things of God, unable to please God, hostile towards God, engaged in evil deeds, loving darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil, not wanting to come to the light, not wanting to come to the truth, not wanting to submit to God, constantly in rebellion against God, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, and on and on and on. Worse than that is what you are if you will not take care of your own widows. That is, that's scary. That is really scary. It's like the man in 1 Corinthians 5. Do you remember that man? He was the man who was committing incest with his father's wife, his stepmother. And the church at Corinth thought they were doing some great deed by, oh, we're tolerating this man. See, we aren't judging him. We're just letting him continue because we're loving Paul says, what are you doing? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This guy's going to infect the whole body. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourself. And he says, this man is committing immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. He is worse than a heathen. One commentator wrote, a Christian who acts like this is worse than an individual who makes no pretense of believing God on two accounts... Firstly, to profess adherence to a body of teaching and then fragrantly deny a basic tenet of this teaching is worse than making no such claim. It proclaims the person insincere or dishonest or both. Secondly, many an unbeliever recognizing the duties of family, responsibilities, does what the un, does what the believer with full revelation of grace fails to do. End quote. You become worse... Then an unbeliever, when you are saved, you do have the Spirit, you do have the Scriptures, you do know what is right, and you fail to do it because the unbeliever has none of that. Failing to take care of your own widows is a serious offense to God. And it indicates one of two things. One, you either don't know God because your life is a continual Mockery of him, and that you will not obey him in this area, or two, there is a serious crack in the foundation of your faith, and whatever the the case may be, the cure is the same. Repent, turn from it, make some plans, and start showing practice pra- showing and practicing piety towards those widows in your family. Finally, look at verse sixteen. Here is the last verse in this section which addresses families verse 16 says if any widow who is a believer has dependent widows she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed now the title any woman literally means um it's it's a believer but with the feminine it's any woman believer is what he's talking about if there's a a believing woman or a woman believer It probably does not refer to children and grandchildren because they were already addressed in verse 4. So who is this woman who is a believer? It could just be a close friend, maybe a daughter-in-law whose husband has died, or a sister, or an aunt, or a distant relative who had the means to take care of a widow. So he's saying, listen, I don't care if you're even a single woman. If you have the means to take care of a widow within your family circle, do it. Do it. She must assist them, Paul says, and the church must not be burdened. When you look at all of this together, you see very clearly what Paul is saying. The church is to take care of widows and adopt them as mother only if they are left all alone not less than 60, and meet up all the criteria. Everyone else is to be taken care of by their own family. By their own family. And the reason is stated, so the church must not be burdened. The church is only to be supporting widows. The church cannot become a full-scale welfare system. So he says, families, take your responsibility. Meet the needs of your own widows. Widows, we also saw her to take some responsibility, too. If they're younger, get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Okay, let's move on. Second, what is the church leadership's responsibility to do in relation to widows? So, we have the church. What is the church as a general? And when you talk about the church, you're really talking about the leaders of the church since they're leading the church. And this whole book is about leadership. What are we supposed to do? Well, look back at verse 7. There's a couple little phrases here that we can look at, and these kind of tell us the church's general responsibility. First, he says, prescribe and teach these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Now, he has just finished talking about honoring widows who are widows indeed in verse 3, about families taking care of their own widows, about the qualifications of a widow indeed in verse 5 about those who are not widows indeed because they they live like unbelievers and give themselves to wanton pleasure... And then he says, prescribe these things as well. What things? All those things. And I think because the whole context is talking about widows, he's talking about everything. He has used the same terminology in chapter 4 when he's talking about pastors and what they're supposed to teach. He says, you know, teach these things. Command is this word prescribe. It's literally be commanding these things. That is to teach with authority, teach with conviction, teach with passion. So that the church will know what to do in relationship to widows. That is the church's primary responsibility. To make sure the sheep know what to do in relationship to their own and to those who qualify as widows indeed. These things surely refer to everything in verses 3 through 6, but surely the whole context. So Paul gives the reason so that they may be above reproach. Why does he say that? Well, because if they don't teach these things, then some will become, like we have already learned, you know, the the idle, gossip, busybodies going about from house to house, talking about things not proper to mention. Some will fall into the temptation snare to seek after pleasure and will you know, wander away from the faith. Um, Like he says in verse 15, some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And also verse 6, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So the cure here is not only a cure of providing, it is not only a cure addressed to the church and the families of those who have widows in the church, but also to widows themselves. So they take the proper steps too. Then look down at verse 16 again. At the very end of the verse, we've already looked at The first part of the verse, and there's the last line also tells us what the church's responsibility is as a whole. When it says that it may assist those who are widows indeed, which basically is a summary of the whole section, right? Because verse 3 says, honor widows who are widows indeed. And the last part of verse 6 says, assist those who are widows and widows. These are the bookends. Obviously, the whole theme is about who the church should assist with financial support and so it is put at both ends to let us know that the church's responsibility is to find out who are widows indeed who really has legitimate needs and to meet those needs the church is to take two basic approaches first teach the word of god in relationship to widows and secondly to obey the word of god in relationship to widows first the church would determine if a widow met the qualifications if she did they put her on a list, support her. Secondly, if a widow did not meet the qualifications, then several things would have to happen. These are not all of them, but these are three general lines of attack. First, a widow doesn't, unless she's less than 60 or something. If the widow is older, um, um, you know, but not quite uh, 60, um, she would have to ask herself, can I get married? Can I bear children? Can I keep house? And that would be the counsel that the, the word of God gives. She is to fulfill her own duty and her children are to take care of her. If she was an older widow, let's say 60 or over, but she had a history of ungodly living that she showed by her behavior that she wasn't a believer, then the church's responsibility to her would be to evangelize her. And third, if God did not see fit to give a widow another husband to take care of them, then it would be the responsibility of the immediate family members to do so, and the extended family members, if the immediate family members didn't exist or couldn't do so, or wouldn't do so, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, to care for their own widows and their own immediate and extended family, so that the church Would not be burdened. So that's what the Word of God says about widows and widows indeed. And what I want you to do is, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think some of you have already lost your mothers. Some of you, I know, have been warriors in caring for your mother. I know this to be true. You've cared for your mother for years and years, and maybe they've recently died. Some of you have mothers who are widows. And you need to ask yourself, am I showing piety in regard to them? Do I have a plan to minister to them? If not, you need to make that plan. And some of you are going to have mothers who are widows. Recently, I was in Washington this last week, and my dad is deathly ill. He's, um, he's in the hospital, probably won't come home. Um, has pneumonia and you know, congestive heart failure and a thousand other things. And... Um, it may be soon that my mom is a widow. Now, the good thing is, is because we have eight children in our family, I don't have to do anything. (laughs) Not. Not. I'm glad you're listening. No. I make it a, a point to call my mom and to send her flowers and to email her and do things like that, to visit her, try and visit her once a year at least, and she lives up in Washington. And... If she becomes a widow, I will have to do that more because she will be more lonely as my dad will not be there. Now, I can't expect my, maybe my brothers and sisters who don't know Christ to have that same passion, but I would expect them, those who are not even believers, to reach out to my mom more when and if she becomes a widow. Now, it could be she might die before my dad or my dad might live to 100, but... um, It doesn't look that way. The whole point is, is we need to make plans to care for the members of our own family. Because this is God's will. And to not do so is to deny the Christian faith and to live like somebody who's worse than an unbeliever. So look at your heart. Look at your life. If you see a widow on the horizon, prepare. Make preparations and plans to provide for them and show piety, because this is God's will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. What a great passage of Scripture this is. So wonderful. So many good things here for us to learn, things that we can apply to our life, things that are so practical. Help all of us to be sensitive to the needs of those widows whom you have placed in our family, in our life, Father, when there is a widow indeed, may you bring them to our attention so that this body may be able to adopt them. And Father, that we might reach out to them and minister to them like your word says. And Father, we thank you for your instruction. We thank you for the reproof and correction and training in righteousness that it gives us so that we might give you more glory and live in righteousness before you. Father, we just thank you for our time today. and. We thank you for the Willis's being here. And we look forward to what you will do with them in the future and our possible relationship with them. And pray that your will would be done in that area. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.